Hungry Trilobite podcast would like to start by acknowledging SoonerCon. Get ready for the next chapter in Oklahoma's longest-running fan-run pop culture convention. SoonerCon will be returning in 2024, June 21st through 23rd. Get ready for a weekend of cosplay, fun and excitement, vendors, gaming, and more. You can go to SoonerCon.com for more information. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today's episode, I'm bringing back John Vorhaus, the author of the new book, The Book of Practice. And as this is an episode about practice, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that John has been on the show two times prior. So this would be a great time to look at how my practice is going. You can queue up those old episodes and see how my podcasting is progressing as time goes on. Let's get started with John right now. Back again, we have John Vorhaus. How you been? Really, really good. Happy as a hot dog at a vegetarian barbecue. Keeping cold out here. Cool in California. Well, glad to hear that. It is roasting right here. It is 102 right this second. Mm. It's, it's amazing how 102 can make 90 look cool. It really can. And I'm telling you, I always get excited when I see one of your books show up. I enjoy reading them quite a bit. I'm a little worried about you, though. And I, oh, do tell. Yeah. Fascinated to hear more. I got this book and I look at it and it's called The Book of Practice. And I'm like, John, people don't like that word. That, that's a scary word to some people. And you put it right in the title. So I, I want to give you a chance to work through this because it's a good book, but it's going to scare people. Well, I think for some people it'll scare them and for others, it'll be a call to action. And maybe it'll scare a man be a call to action. But if you, as you have read the book, you'll know that my point of view is there's nothing to be scared about in practice. There's nothing at stake. Outcomes don't matter. All that really matters is doing what you love and getting better at doing it more. That's a, it's a great perspective. And I like this. I like what you're doing here because you are tackling one of the things, I'd say one of the two things that really scares people away from getting creative and following what they're looking to do. That is one, people are afraid to practice because it sounds boring, it sounds unproductive, it sounds hard. People don't like hard things. And the other thing is people are always just afraid to get started. They, they think they have to wait for some magical thing to happen for them to be ready to move. And your book, it, it definitely tackles the practice question, but it kind of tackles both, really. Sure does. Um... My idea about practice is the minute you say to yourself, I, I'm in practice, or even just, I want to be in practice, then you're in practice. You've taken the first concrete step toward, according to the subtitle of the book, doing better what you want to do well. So I, I kind of stacked the deck in favor of making it easy to start, kind of by saying the minute you think about starting, actually you are starting which means you never have to worry about starting because you already started and you just didn't even know it. As far as the idea of practice being scary to some people, let's just look at that word practice. Okay, the part that sounds scary is, oh, I'm a musician, I have to practice my scales. Or I'm a, a, an artist, I have to practice my line work. I have to do this thing that I don't want to do. But what is that thing in service of? It's in service of something that brings you so much joy, you can't wait to do it all the time. Uh, take the example of doing scales. 
Okay, I'm going to stipulate that doing scales, the act of doing scales, is not necessarily a huge amount of fun. But the minute you've had a little bit of practice at doing scales, suddenly a whole world of creative expression opens up to you. Hey, look, I don't have to play the scale, you know, one, two, three, four, five. I can play it one, five, three, four, two, 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 six, two, two, five, three, seven. Wow, look at this. I'm creating something. How did I get here? I mastered a small tool. I mastered a small technique. I learned how to run a scale with my left hand and my right hand. All right, now I have a tool that I can treat like a toy and play with it and do all kinds of fun things with it. A lot, a lot of what's going on here is kind of a reflection of my own adventures in doing digital art. Over the last few years, I've gotten pretty darn good at creating digital art, but the tools that I use baffled me for a long, long time and baffled me in, in a particular way because I was stubborn about wanting to learn new things, broadly speaking, not Photoshop, but something like that. What can this thing really do? For a long time, I worked within limits because learning new tools didn't seem that fun. But one day I said to myself, what happens if I click on this thing here? What does this do? And all of a sudden, not only was I having more fun, well, my creative expression was taking extreme left turns and right turns simply because I'd given myself a simple new, to, new tool to work with. So let's say that practice isn't an odious thing that you have to do in order to get where you want to go. Rather, it's a simple way of turning your craft into tool craft. Easy, fun, practical, no threat, no fear. That's and the take. Yeah, and it's those kind of reframings that make this book so valuable because in each section, and it's it's kind of composed as a series of sections and analyses of of practice as as a whole. You it says it takes a look at the objections somebody might have to going to practice and doing their practice, and it kind of dismantles that bit by bit. So if if maybe this isn't your hang up, but that is somewhere in that book, you have an argument specifically for the person who's hung up over that. Well, I sure hope so. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I intend this book to be the kind of book that I really could have used when I was 20, 25 years old, and just kind of finding my way into this space that I've since called the life of a serial creative entrepreneur. I didn't call it that yet, then. I didn't know that's what I was doing. And I really didn't have any kind of resource that I could pull off the bookshelf and say, hey, I don't know you, I don't know what you're doing, but I think this might be what you're doing and what you're trying to doing. If you are trying to do it, you're probably encountering some pretty typical uh, roadblocks and hurdles. Let's talk about them, figure out what they are and figure out how to step past them. So yeah, you know me, Aaron, you know my work, simple, practical rules, tools, and a good swift kick into motivation. It's my brand, it's where I live. But I've also discovered that by accident of birth and training, I have a brain that can do two things at the same time. It can create and it can look at the act of creation. In other words, I can have my process and evaluate or analyze my process at the same time. That's not a tool that comes naturally to a lot of people, I think. So mostly what I'm doing in this book is I'm just trying to open up my understanding of my process and more broadly, everybody's process. Not with a sense of saying, hey, you guys are doing it wrong, you should do it this way, but rather with a sense of saying, hey, 
you guys and gals and others, if you're encountering challenges, maybe look at this aspect of the challenge and see what will happen if you change that. Can I give you an example? Please. Okay. One of the things that everybody faces is fear based on expectation. Let's imagine that you're a stand-up comic going up on stage for the first time in your life. You got a lot of expectations and a lot of fear about going up on that stage. And you're likely to give yourself an instruction or set a goal like, <clears throat> go out there and crush this because if you don't, it will be a major mental defeat. The problem is that you've now set your expectations so high that you've also levered up the pressure that you put on yourself. And everybody from Michael Jordan on down knows when pressure is high, performance is low. To lower pressure, lower expectations. When you lower pressure, performance in increases. That's why Michael Jordan famously said when he was playing in his seventh game of the NBA, what's your goal here? I'm just going to try and go out and have fun because that was a goal that he knew he could easily achieve. I refined that a little bit. My idea for going up on stage for the first time or anything, do your best and have fun. If you set your goal as do my best and have fun, whether it's scales, going up on stage, job interview, uh, MBA application, anything you can think of will work better if your expectation is not do this great or it's all over, do this great or I'm doomed, but rather I'm going to do it. I'm going to experience some outcomes, do my best and have fun. That's a low threshold that's easily stepped over. Now, this is not a problem that everybody has, but if it's a problem that you have, you need a solution and the solution is there. It's plain. It's simple. Change your expectations, lower your expectations, lower your pressure, lower your pressure, lower your fear, lower your fear, increase performance. Now you can take that small step up to the stage for the first time in your life and say, okay, I've got these five minutes to experience what it's like to be a stand-up comic. I know my goal, do my best and have fun. Pretty sure I can accomplish that goal. Let's have the outcome and see what happens. Stakes are completely removed, lowered, and uh, outcomes are going to be better. And it's one of those cases where you're almost working against yourself because when you set the expectation of success, you're almost certainly setting it according to somebody else's success. Very few people, especially creatives, are going to go out there and say, I'm going to make something unique and amazing. Like, no, I'm going to make a superhero comic because there aren't any of those around right now. They're going to set that benchmark for somebody else and not give themselves the freedom to have their own completely new idea. Mm -hmm. I can deconstruct that for you. Please. Somebody, somebody says to themselves, I'd like to write a love story. And they start developing the love story. And then at a certain point, they say, oh, geez, this is just Romeo and Juliet. Now I can't do it because there's already a Romeo and Juliet. And it already is much better than anything I could aspire to. I get the logic of that, but it breaks down on close examination. Because the person who has that thought, I'd like to write a love story, will tell a version of Romeo and Juliet that is, that is uh, 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 unique to their own experience. They might try to write like Shakespeare. They're not going to write like Shakespeare. They might try to write like West Side Story. Not going to do that either. They're going to write it the way they write it. So it will be a unique and um, uh, self-validating creative outcome. So the fact that it might look like something that's been done before, that might be true. But then the assumption 
that since it might look like something that's been done before, therefore I'm not allowed to do it, that assumption is not valid. That assumption breaks down because what you end up creating won't look as much like Romeo and Juliet as you think it does. And it wouldn't matter even if it did. Um, I mean, geez, think about how many medieval artists did the Madonna and Child. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a great example. It's, yeah, it's not like anybody said to him, we've got all the Madonnas and Childs we need. In fact, the message was the other way around. We need more. Everybody mm -hmm. should do Madonna and Child. Well, if you're afraid that your Madonna and Child isn't going to be as good as the best, then you're never going to create your own Madonna and Child and find out your own personal relationship to that particular subject matter. And just to go back to the example I pulled out a couple seconds ago, I like superhero comics. I buy a lot of them. I read a lot of them because each one is an expression of what that person wanted to write, either from that character or a completely different character. They put their spin on it. And sometimes it's close to something known and sometimes it's completely out of left field, but it's all worth doing. You know, you said something there that, that triggers a, a thought. See if I can crystallize it. When we create writing, art, music, whatever, we think we are creating a thing that the audience will have a relationship with. But what we're really creating is our own relationship to the thing that the audience will then consider. So it's not really about how does the Madonna and child compare to other Madonna, Madonna and child, but rather what does this Madonna and child say about the person who created it and say about that person's relationship to their work? When you look at it through that filter, there's no better or worse because everybody's relationship to the topic is absolutely unique to their experience. And everybody's outcome must necessarily be different, not better, not worse, just different. Okay, now a guy comes along and says, don't compare yourself to other people. And on some level you get that. You say, ah, I get it, I understand. Comparisons are odious, blah, blah, blah. But if I'm a young striver, maybe I wanna be a TV writer and I'm looking what great looking at what great TV writers can accomplish. I won't bother to think these are people who've been at it for 20 or 30 years. All I will think is they can do something that I can't currently do and therefore believe I will never be able to do. Therefore, why bother trying? Because there's no hope of success. And I just turn that around and say, it's not about creating a television show that transforms the world. It's about having an act of writing that transforms the creator. And at I mean, that point, you're getting back to just have fun. Just have fun. Uh, I've, I've recently made contact. I live in California, but I recently made contact with a young creator, a filmmaker in Benin, the country of Benin in West Africa. I'd never met anybody from West Africa before, from Benin before, but... As soon as I crossed paths with this guy, I said, I want to be in a room with him. I want to be in a room with him and a half a dozen of his closest friends and fellow filmmakers, people who are interested in making their industry better, making their circumstance better. And I said this because I saw a clip of something that he'd been working on, and it's so earnest and so obviously unbudgeted. You know, everything is is 
handmade and shot on on uh, in, in wild terrain, not on standing sets. There's, clearly, there's no money in this at all. But there's somebody who is not letting the challenge of no money keep him from creative expression. Other people in other circumstances will say, well, I don't have the budget to do it right. Therefore, I won't do it at all. The point is not to do it right. The point is to do it at all. Huh, that's a good pull quote, isn't it? Ladies it really and gentlemen, is. the point is not to do it right or even to do it well. The point is just to do it. And I'm sure we have something similar in screenwriting, but in podcasting, there is a phrase, hit record. Is huh. Yeah, because there's so many people who are like, I can't get started until I have this. I can't get started until this happens to me. And that line of thought will always, always stop you from doing it. There's literally never a reason to not just hit record and start right now. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's great. And I can certainly imagine that for every podcaster in this world of ours, there must be 10 or 100 would-be podcasters who haven't quite crossed that first threshold because they're afraid to hit record. Can I tell you, Aaron, that I myself am afraid to hit record? Not on a podcast, but just generally. Every time I launch a new book, I spend a fair amount of time saying, is it ready? Is now the time? You know, is today the day? Is this when I hit publish? It's always a bit of a struggle because I never know when the right moment is. What I've trained myself to do is just be patient with myself and know when the time is right, I'll hit send. I, I do it the same way in starting novels. Starting a novel is a big undertaking. And I spend a lot of time thinking about it and waiting for it to happen. Not because I'm really afraid of doing the work, but because I recognize that part of my process is just waiting for the time to be right. And so what comes out from this, something I talk about in the book is you want to develop the knack of having patience and impatience at the same time. Having patience means can't bring myself to hit record, still can't do it. Couldn't do it yesterday, can't do it today. All right, I'm just gonna say that's okay. I'm gonna have patience with myself for where my limitations lie. I'm gonna acknowledge and accept them. But at the same time, I wanna get stuff done. So when tomorrow comes, I'm gonna try and be a little bit more impatient and get back at it and maybe ask myself in more forceful terms, is today the day? to hit record. And even if I'm not sure, maybe I'll be a little less unsure than I was the day before. So I'll go ahead and say, well, screw it. Throw it out the window and see if it lands and hit record. I got a little mad at myself last week, probably for the best of reasons, but I wrote something that I was really happy with. And I said to myself, you know, I've finally realized I've never regretted sitting down and getting words out of my brain and onto the screen. Even if I later had to edit those or completely throw them out, I never regretted the act of just getting them there. So why do I resist that so much? Why do I sit around and say, this isn't the day so often? Fear. Always fear. Maybe not for you. Maybe certainly for me, for most people. In this case, we can look at it this way. Every time we write, if we are strivers, we're trying to write something that's a little harder or different from what we've done before. And every time we try to write something that we've never written before, a little voice inside our head says, hey, maybe this is when you reach your limit. And maybe this is where you hit the wall. Maybe your ambition is finally writing a check that your talent can't cash. So 
there is a natural relationship between striving and fear. You try something, no, you're afraid to try something so you don't do it. Eventually you get over the fear and then you do it. And then you look back at on, on it and you say, well, that was great. I didn't mind that. That was a lot of fun. What shall I do next? And then you undertake something that's a little different, a little harder than the one before. And because it's a little different and a little harder, it has its own special insecurities, its own special fears, and they hold you back for a while. Then they stop holding you back and you move forward. Eventually, you start to gain this um, um, uh, global perspective on the high pro whole process. And you say to yourself, I go through this sort of thing every single time. I procrastinate up until the point where the pressure of a deadline gets so great that I can't procrastinate anymore. So what can I do instead? Maybe in, use a different rule, maybe procrastinate later. That is do the work and save the time wasting for after the work is done. Work's gonna take as much time as it takes, but all that time worrying and fretting, that's time you never get back. So maybe skip that part. And looking at the whole thing more globally still, what we're really talking about is having awareness and acceptance of your process. Awareness of your process, this is how I work. Acceptance of your process, how I work is absolutely fine. When you stand on that platform, then you can actually get stuff done. Do you think it's possible to change your process? Oh, yeah. Fundamentally. Fundamentally. Yeah, okay. you can refine you can refine it. Give you an example from my own experience. <clears throat> Before I started doing art, I only looked at creativity through a writer's filter. And a lot of what the writer thinks about is what am I communicating to the audience? So that the writer understands there's a fundamental line of travel from the writer's brain to the reader's brain. And doesn't really think so much about what's on that line of travel, the words themselves except that they are a means to an end. That's the way I was as a writer until I started doing art. I understood creative communication as a means to an end. I'm trying to get some reader somewhere to have some kind of reaction. Okay, that's fine, that's valid. But now I start doing art for which I have had and continue to have fairly small um, viewership, fairly small audience, but the audience that I'm serving, the audience of the self, is being thrilled day in and day out. Suddenly I realize I'm not having a relationship with the audience. I'm having a relationship with the work, and it's completely fulfilling to me. Now I can take that idea back to my writing and say, think about your process differently. All your life you've been thinking about your process as my only job is to make sure that I'm communicating clearly and 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 powerfully to the reader. That's part of your job, but we know from your experience of art that another part of your job is to have fun doing what you're doing. Now my process has changed. <clears throat> I see, okay. And you got that process by taking your creativity to a completely different realm, a completely different practice, and then bringing those lessons back home again. Exactly, exactly. So a, a lot of this is like turning on a series of lights and every light you turn on illuminates the space around you a little bit better, including knowledge or awareness of what other lights yet remain to be turned on. What I like about what you do and how you do it is that you completely throw away the idea of you're going to be good at one thing, if that. You, you tend to have 
so many different talents that don't necessarily intersect, but you find ways of weaving the, the commonalities in between them. My range of practices is so broad. It extends professionally everywhere from writing to educational consulting. That is to say, helping uh, candidates for top MBA programs get into Harvard, Stanford, Wharton. Couldn't be further removed from my writing, couldn't be further removed from my art. But all of the work I do in one helps me in the other, constant flow of feedback back and forth. All my life, I've kind of lived by the motto. Actually, I call this my business model. Walk down the beach, pick up everything you find, turn it into a party hat. That's it's so liberating and so clarifying. What is my job? My job is to investigate new things and have fun. That's a pretty good job to have. And the only limitations that are imposed on it are the ones that I impose on myself. At a certain point in my life, I said, I am a writer, not an artist. And until I changed my self-definition from I am a writer, not an artist to I am a writer, I'm going to try and be an artist, I, I couldn't get past the limitation that I had placed on myself. By the time I was ready to confront that, I had so much experience of doing different things, being different people, reinventing myself, that I kind of grasped what I was doing and why I was doing it um, in, a, in a conscious and deliberate way. I, by that time, I knew what I was doing. But, you know, that's the role of a lifetime. So for people out there who say to themselves, I can't do a bunch of different things because it'll look like I don't know what I'm doing. My response would be, you know what? Go off in any direction. You're bound to arrive somewhere. And because it's the act of arriving that matters, wherever you arrive is going to be a good place. If I can swing back to comic books for a moment, I don't mean to keep bringing it up, but it keeps going no, back No, it's there. fine. It's fine. Um, on another episode, I had a chat with Heather Antos, who is a very, very talented writer of comics. But if you look at her artwork, it's very good. It's extremely good. And you would, if you didn't know better, assume she was actually an illustrator for the comics. And I, I, we, we got to talking about what exactly, why she spent so much time writing when she has so much talent in the other area. And she said, I learned how to draw so I'd have, to have something to do while I was sitting at my table at conventions. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, she's there just to, to talk about her work as a writer, but just started sketching and doodling and developed that a very substantial amount of talent just from that because she wanted something to do. Uh, I, I, I don't know this person, but I'm going to bet based on my own experience that there was yet one other layer to it. Let me recount my story and then we can see if I, I'm right about this. Um, once many years ago, I was, uh, I was doing a book signing and it was in a public place and people were going by in large numbers and nobody was paying any attention to me. I was sort of hanging out there, metaphorically picking my nose and feeling really bad about the situation I was in because it wasn't gratifying to me in any sense. I said to myself, I got to change the metric here. I got to change the rules of this moment. So I decided I'm no longer here at a book signing. Instead, I'm doing a survey. And as people walked by, I said to them, hey, I got a question for you. What's the most important thing you know? And I just started asking the question and recording the answers. 
And I found, my, found it as my way into some really interesting discussions, as you might imagine. But mostly what I did was I rescued myself from a moment that had a negative emotional impact on me. Nobody's paying attention to me. How can I change the circumstance so that the fact that people aren't paying attention to me or buying my books no longer matters? So if I'm Heather sitting at that table and there's not a line of people clamoring for my attention, Part of me says I need to do something to relieve the boredom, but part of me says I need to do something to relieve this crushing feeling of self-consciousness that I'm carrying with me because it might look to passersby like I'm experiencing failure right now. Now, in what I just described to you, I unpacked my state of mind, my own mental fears, concerns, insecurities, et cetera. But I bet that I also spoke to yours and maybe some other people who are listening in the sense that these are common problems. We all fear looking like a failure in the eyes of other people. And if all we do with that fear is surrender to it, then we never make any progress. We don't push record, as you say. But if instead we look at that fear through the lens of awareness and acceptance, we can say, I see this fear, the fear of, of looking like a failure. I understand that it's present in my life. It's keeping me from what I wanna do, have some fun in this moment here. So let me change my expectation for the moment. Let me change the literal definition of this moment. So then instead of finding myself in a situation where I can't win, I'm gonna create a situation where I can't lose. Because now I'm not trying to sell books, I'm trying to conduct a survey. And everyone will stop and answer the question, what's the most important thing you know? <clears throat> Excuse me. I'll tell you the punchline to that story because this takes the whole thing to a meta level. Uh, while I was doing this, a young guy shadowed me for a few minutes and listened in on the conversations I was having. And then he turned to me and he said, you know what? That question, what's the most important thing you know, might be the greatest pickup line in the history of the world. And I thought about it and I said, oh, might not be right. I mean, it might not be wrong. That might actually be a pretty good pickup line. Because if you ask a stranger in a bar, what's the most important thing you know, you're going to get one of two responses, either a blank stare or an interesting answer. If you get the blank stare, you know you don't want to talk to that person anyhow, because they're not capable of an interesting answer. If you get an interesting answer, you know you found a kindred spirit. It self-selects for success. You've also presented yourself as someone who is alive in their own mind, and that's not nothing. Anyway, this guy said, sounds like a great pickup line. Oh, I got to go. I'm going to a wine tasting around the corner. Six months later, I get an email from this guy. Hey, I'm getting married. I want you to come to my engagement party. I'm marrying a gal I met at that wine tasting using your pickup line. And I thought to myself, my ticket to heaven just got punched. My whimsy, my need to not suffer in a moment in a book signing inadvertently created a lifelong relationship. Well, we hope it's lifelong. Who knows at this point, they might've divorced. The point is without seeking to have a profound knock-on impact, I had a profound knock-on impact. And, and this is something else we find over and over in all kinds of practice. The thing you think you're getting out of it is only part of what you actually get out of it. And the things that you actually get out of it, you often can't see until you're looking at them through the lens of the past. It's very difficult. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying way at the beginning, that you you can't 
when you're trying to make something of your own, when you're trying to create, you can't envision what it's going to be like until it's actually out there. You can't set that goal for yourself. Just like in these moments, you couldn't actually plan to do that. You just had to put enough positivity out there and just see what happened once it reached its goal. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, a lot of times we, we're engaged in creativity in a theoretical sense inside our brains, but until the creative stuff gets out of our brains and into some form where we can look at it and operate on it, we really don't have anything. Uh, I might say to myself, uh, I'd like to take up pottery. I'd like to throw a, throw, throw a pot. All right, so now I know what I want to do. I want to throw a pot. But until I actually put clay on a potter's wheel and start forming it, I won't know what I have. Now here comes value judgment again, because probably what I'm going to have is something that sucks, just sucks. Why? Because it's my first effort and I don't know what I'm doing. I change my goals. I do a little goal shifting. My goal here is not to throw a pot. That's a beautiful pot. My goal here is to have my first experience of pottery. That I can do and that I am having. As long as I'm not thinking about the outcome, but thinking about the process, I'm now I'm not worried about whether it's a good pot or a bad pot, because that's not the, the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is to advance my understanding of this thing that I want to do. And I was thinking throughout the beginning of this conversation that I wanted to bring up something to you, and I really shouldn't, because you're the one that taught it to me. And so if we'd bring it up, you would be kind of silly, but I still remember the Wade Boggs principle from one of your books very fondly, and it is very, a consistent guideline in how I approach my problem solving. Do you want to summarize it or should I? Uh, no, you, go ahead. No, you go. I want to hear what oh, you have Okay, to say. well, essentially, and keep in mind, this is coming from somebody who doesn't follow baseball at all, but the idea was that Wade Boggs, one of the best players of the age, had decided that at some, he was going to start off every practice by hitting the basics over and over again. He would step up to the bat and he would just keep hitting his practice rounds over and over again. And the takeaway from that is if he can do the basic practice day in and day out, there's no reason you can't. Hmm. Um, thank you for reflecting that back to me. I believe that's probably from my book, The Comic Toolbox, How to Be Funny Even If You're Not, mm -hmm. which is... I'm happy to say a classic, but when I wrote it, I had no idea what it was going to be, case in point. But yeah, we got Wade Boggs. We kind of understand that he's got millions riding on being a good hitter. So it makes sense for him to invest in practice. But even at that, it seems like practice is something that they have to do, but we don't have to do. And what hangs us up is that verb, have to. We have to do it. Practice is not something you have to do. Practice is something you get to do. And it, I want to dwell on this for a second because this feels like a new idea to me. All over our world and throughout our listening audience, we have people who have available corners of their time to do creative stuff. They want to be writers. They want to be podcasters. They want to be comic book artists. But meanwhile, they're doing other things. But those other things that they're doing are sufficiently non-demanding, that there's still time in their lives for them to try new things. I think I'll write my memoir. I'm retired. Now I can do that. Or I think I'd like to try being a singer-songwriter. I've got a day job that supports me. I can give that a try. So entering practice 
is something that we can only do because we have the means, motive, and opportunity to do it. Our lives are not so crowded or imperiled that there's no room for practice. There's no room for creative expression or enterprise or you know, studying the law, anything you might want to practice, anything you might use just to advance yourself to a higher level. There's room for it in your life. If there's room for it in your life, that means practice is something you get to do. You have the opportunity to do it. And, you know, even for my new friends in the West African country of Benin, where financial resources are extremely limited, they have that creative urge and they're making time and space for it in their lives. So even for them, practice is something that they get to do. I think if, if, if I were listening to this podcast and really wanting to take something on board that would help my practice day in and day out, I might glom onto that. I might think about practice is not a penalty. Practice is something that I cherish. Practice is something that's fun and engaging and, and creates growth. So part of this goes back to fear because fear has a way of representing itself as being other things like I'm afraid to start my novel. So I'll tell myself, I don't have time to write a novel. It's not true. I know it's not true, but the fear tells me to lie to myself. So I'm probably not gonna get that novel started until I have a frank, but a loving conversation with my fear. Uh, hey fear, I see you, I acknowledge you. I know you're present in my life. You're present in everybody's life, okay? So. I accept you, I accept that you are present, but also I'm not gonna be a slave to you. I'm gonna recognize when you're manipulating me to keep me from engaging in what I wanna do, have fun with, and I'm gonna try not to let you do that. This doesn't mean that I have destroyed my fear, it just means I've developed a sneaky strategy to step around it, which is what everybody does with their fear all the time. That's a great place to leave it right there. I mean, if, if we can conquer somebody's fear, I think we've done something here. John, I am going to link to your book as well as the previous two episodes of this podcast you've been on. Where else can people find you on the web? Well, uh, uh, Amazon. Just go to Amazon and, and type in my name, John Vorhouse. Also, if you know my name, John Vorhouse, then you know my website, johnvorhouse.com. Isn't that convenient? And if you go there, you'll find the book of practice right there on the landing page and you click, can click to it. Aaron, I want people to know a couple of things when it comes to buying this book. The downloadable, the user-friendly downloadable PDF on my website is only $10. The print version of the book is only $10. Unfortunately, there's a, um, a shipping and handling charge of another $10 because that's the world we live in. It is. Stuff ain't cheap. But the book is cheap. The book is inexpensive. $10, that's throwaway money. It's not because I don't value my work. It's because I want this book to find its way into many hands. And I'm particularly hoping that people will think not just about how might this book be useful to me, but how might it be useful to a young striver I know? That's really the audience that I'm trying to get to. And being not a young person myself, I don't have a lot of direct access to young people these days. So I hope that people will think about who do I know who could really profit from looking at their process through the filter of joy and not fear? And if you know somebody who could stand 
to have more joy and less fear around their practice. I hope you'll help them find their way to this book. Please. Yes, that'd be a great thing. Email this episode and that book to your friend and see if we can maybe connect them with a little more joy and a little less fear. John, thank you so much. My pleasure, Aaron. Have a great day. I would like to thank John for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. It's been a tumultuous week in the world of social media, and you might be wondering what I'm doing as far as the whole Twitter situation goes. Well, I do still have a Twitter account for the moment. Admit I'm not posting there as much as I used to. I have started a Blue Sky account, and I enjoy that quite a bit more. So if you have access to Blue Sky, feel free to look me up there. I do have a Threads account. And I'm kind of not sure where that's going right now. I spend a lot more time on Instagram than I used to. So you can look me up at Aaron Boss to get any of those locations. In the meantime, this show will always be coming out and you can subscribe. I have noticed that Stitcher has stopped distributing new podcasts or they're going to be stopping very, very soon, which is a shame because Stitcher was one of the old guard when it came to podcasts. So if you were a Stitcher user, you may want to switch over to Good Pods or one of the other major uh, podcast chasers like Overcast. You could also get this show on Apple, Google, Spotify, or any other podcast platform that you choose. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.